When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Ugly Things Podcast. My name is Mike Stacks. Three hours outside of London and before the motorways, a long drive down country lanes and through rustic villages brings you to Andover, a small town in the southwest of England. Population at the beginning of the 60s, 17,000. The Trogs came from nowhere, and in 1966, nowhere was Andover. With the brash, primal, salacious, three-chord funk and crunch of Wild Thing, Reg Presley, Chris Britton, Pete Staples, and Ronnie Bond took rock and roll back to its most basic building blocks at a time when the pop scene was starting to take itself a little more seriously. The Trogs were minimalists by nature, not by design, and that's part of what makes them special. They were real. Although they're remembered by most people for their hit records, Wild Thing especially, but also with a girl like you, love is all around, any way that you want me and I can't control myself, they left behind a deep catalog of memorable music. For the story, featured in Ugly Things magazine, issue number 59, I talked to the two surviving members of the classic Trogs lineup, guitarist Chris Britton, a Trog for around 50 years, with a seven-year hiatus during the 1970s, and bass player Pete Staples, who exited the group in 69, but whose distinctive bass crunch was an integral part of their sound during their heyday. Pete Staples' memoir of his Trogs years, Wild Thing, A Rocky Road, was published in 2017 and is recommended reading for any literate troglodyte. According to Chris, Larry Page, the band's longtime manager and producer, was the guy who came up with the title for their debut album, From Nowhere, The Trogs. Because as far as Larry Page was concerned, they'd virtually come from nowhere. These interviews were recorded in January 2022. those days there were lots of bands coming from London and Liverpool and Manchester and Birmingham but Andover was a little bit sort of like a village in the sticks compared to that. I mean the whole thing happened over such a quick period. Chris Britton was born in Watford, Hertfordshire on January 21st 1944 but grew up in Andover. Well let's go back to the beginning. Um, I see you were born in Watford. I mentioned that because I was born in Watford as well. So you ready? Yeah, but uh, nice coincidence. But um, when did you first start playing guitar? When I was nine, pretty much before rock and roll hit England. Uh, I just liked the sound of the instrument. I, I was a bit of a, I think, a bit of a sickly kid when I was five, six years old, seven years old. Uh, so I spent quite a lot of time lying in bed listening to the radio, listening to music. And I, I love big band music, and I just like the sound of the guitar strumming away in the background, and uh, also I uh, quite like people like um, Big Bill Bronzy and, and uh, Django Reinhardt and that kind of guitar playing, you know, the jazzy stuff that was well-established in those days, back in the early 50s. 
Did you go through the whole skiffle phase as oh, well? Oh, yes, went through the skiffle bit and trad jazz kicked off. So I got an Austin Southern and a long jumper and tour a beard and wandered around the jazz clubs listening to that. Then it was mainly um, all the singers were sort of solo blokes singing ballads. I mean, Cliff Richard was, I suppose, the first one to come in with Move It, singing something a bit more shifty. But then it, it sort of became more um, instrumental orientated with people like the Shadows and the Ventures and so on. So it was band instrumental music with sort of soppy songs sung by vocalists. And uh, <laughs> and then the Beatles turned up and, and Chuck Berry and Buddy Holly and all that sort of stuff. Pete Staples was born in Andover on May 3rd, 1944, and like Chris, got caught up in the skiffle craze. It was just coming out of the skiffle area, um, you know, with Lonnie Donegan and that sort of stuff. That was the, uh, the stuff that was coming through then, and that was uh, non-electric guitars, acoustic guitars, and uh, maybe a tea chest as a bass, and all the, and a washboard as a, a rhythm section, so... Once you've progressed from the um, skiffle, you went on to start a group. So you've you got a electric pickup to stick on your acoustic guitar. And um, then you have to buy an amplifier and a speaker. It quite, quite often used to buy them separately, you know, um, not in a cabinet. So in, in the amplifier and the um, speaker were sort of just joined up with wires. And we used to do pubs and places like that. Right. And would people dance? I mean, what kind of reaction were you getting early on? It was mainly, you know, places people used to um, go and have drinks and all that, and it sort of sing along with you. That that was the, the type of music that you were playing. It, it was songs, you know, like um, Scoop Down, Pick a Bale of Cotton, you know, that sort of stuff. And people used to join in with you. So it's mainly drinking and singing along with you. Right. Tell me a bit, what, what was Andover like in those days, like the, you know, early 60s? Yeah, it was a very small market town. You know, universally uh, knew most of the people there or their family because um, invariably you went to the same school. So, you know, if, if you were in a pub in Andover, you invariably know somebody or a few people in there. So it was, um, yeah, it was a very small town, but um, it was absolutely lovely then. Pete Staples would eventually join his first rock and roll group, the Senators, while Chris Britton had formed the Redwoods, so-called because all three members had red guitars. After the Senators broke up in late 1963, leaving Pete without a band and with nothing else to do, Chris Britton approached him and asked if he'd like to play bass with the Redwoods, who by then had changed their name to Ten Feet Five. Because, Chris explained, there were five of us and we had ten feet. Chris Britton came up to me and he said, our bass player's leaving, um do you want to join our band? I said, well, I, said, I, said, I don't play bass. I, I, I'm a rhythm guitarist. He said, oh, never mind. He'll let you borrow his bass and he'll show you what to do. As the popularity of the 10 Feet 5 grew, they began to gig all over the West Country, touring around in a Morris J2 van. Pete Staples recalled some of those gigs could get pretty rough. Oh, crikey, yeah. yeah they were, um, out in the country there, they were really wild and... Um, Quite often we used to be playing on stage and a, a fight used to break out in the, and really, you know, it was just bodies and people flying about. What, and we sort of just up on the stage there playing away, you know, watching all these people fight. So it's very, very, quite rough, yeah. Ten Feet Five recorded a single for Fontana in 1965, but nothing came of it. And band members began to drop out. That left Pete and Chris as the last remaining members. Meanwhile, a rival band from Andover, the Emeralds, which featured Reg Ball on bass and Ronnie Bullets on drums, were down to two members themselves. 
Earlier that year, the Emeralds had become the Trogs and recorded a couple of demos, including a version of You Really Got Me, that caught the ear of manager-producer Larry Page, who was best known at the time for his association with the Kinks. Page told them to keep working on their music and come back and see him in a year's time. He got to the stage where the Trogs and the 10th E5 both fell apart, and the 10th E5 were left with Pete Staples and me, a bass player and a guitar player, and the Trogs were left with the drummer and a bass player. Two bass players, a drummer and a guitarist, they came to me and asked if I'd be ready to join them. I said, yeah, I'll join you as long as Pete comes along as well. So I left with the two bass players. And Reg, uh, he was more of a front man anyway. He had sort of a lot more outgoing personality. So how was it decided who would be the bass player? Well, I've been playing the bass a lot longer than, than, than Reg. And um, it was just one of those things we said. Oh, Reg said, he said, you carry on playing because I don't think he was very confident playing the bass. He wasn't, not confident, but he wasn't very happy playing the bass because he used to say he used to try and hide behind people and play. So he wasn't too, um, you know, up front with his bass playing. So we decided that I would carry on playing the bass and Reg would play the tambourine and do some songs every now and then. But cause Ronnie used to do some songs. I used to do a song. Chris used to do songs. Reg used to do songs. We all used to do songs. So Reg was playing the tambourine and singing his songs, and, um, you know, we just carried on as we were, really. How was it decided whether it would be the Trogs or, or Ten Feet Five? Well, because um, Ronnie was the drummer, and they had Trogs on the drum. So <laughs> we, had, we, we, we didn't want to change that. We said, so I'm not going to buy another skin, he said. So we used the name the Trogs, he said. So pretty early on, I think Reg started bringing songs in that he'd written. Yes, yes, he started writing these songs and they sort of sit down and sort of hum it and we all sort of get down and Chris with his guitar work out the chords and I'd put the bass bit in. Um, I think initially um, Reg used to write the song on on a bass. So if you listen to with a girl like you, you'll find the bass pattern follows the tune. Yeah, I wondered that. You know, it's yep, yep, very yep, much yep. about the bass. Because that's the way the Reg sang it and played it. So I just followed the tune and Chris used to put the fancy bits in, which it seemed to work. Larry Page took them into Regent Sound Studios on Denmark Street and in February 1966, Lost Girl was released by CBS as the Trog's debut single with The Yellow in Me on the Other Side. Lost Girl is especially strong with its chunky bass, thundering backbeat and scorching fuzz guitar, but it failed to chart. Larry Page thought it was best to look to outside songwriters for their next single. Let's talk about Wild Thing. I mean, it's pretty well documented, but we have to talk about it. Um, I guess you originally learned it. There was a demo disc. I mean, for, as Pete tells it, there were, you were presented with a couple of demo discs. Yeah, well, Larry Page sent down half a dozen demos, 45 South acetates of, of various songs that he said, have a look through these. Uh, and he, Larry Page favoured us because it was in the days when people were in England were doing covers of American artists and getting them out before they came over here, if you know what I mean. Like Philip Black did something that Dionne Warwick had done in America and 
Anyway, the one that Larry Page favoured was this thing called Did You Ever Have to Make Up Your Mind by The Loving Spoonful, I think it was. He wanted us to do that. And in amongst all this pile of demos that we didn't really think much of was Chip Taylor's demo of World Thing, just him, acoustic guitar, and this funny noise in the middle that we couldn't figure out what it was, but it sounded a bit like the ocarina. So we got cracking on Wild Thing, and then we did um, With a Girl Like You, which was one of Reg's songs that he had in his head. We sat down and we worked that out. So those are the two songs that we rehearsed in this um, workshop that we took up to London eventually. And, and uh, tell me about the recording session. That was quite a, that's quite an amazing story, how that was done. Yeah, well, he, he said, Larry said to us, he said, I got a recording, I'm recording my orchestra, on such and such a day, he said, if I've got any time left, he said, you can bash these two numbers out that, uh, you know, you, you went away to rehearse. So we said, fine. So we all took time off work, drove up to London, waited outside this studio, just sitting in the van there in the cold. <laughs> and um, then all of a sudden the doors opened to the studio and all these people started pouring out, loads and loads of people. And... Um, Colin Fretchner, that's Larry Page's musical director, he came out and he said, right, he said, we finished. He said, get your gear set up. He said, you've got about an hour to get these numbers done. So we went in this studio, and it's a really massive studio, and they'd just been recording an orchestra there. So it was a big place, which we thought, great, because we're used to playing in, in Stan's big workshop. So uh, we, we felt a little bit at home. So we went in there, and he said, right, he said, you've done those numbers. He said, we... Well, he didn't do the Love and Spoonful one. He said, he said you know, we, we couldn't do that. But we got a couple where we can bang out. So we did that, and we, we, we bashed them out. I think we, we took um, maybe one or two takes. By the time they do all the balancing and all that, and finished it, I think it was about three quarters of an hour, and we had Wild Thing in the can, and with a girl like you in the can. You know, three quarters of an hour. How did you come up with that intro, that bending guitar note? We, we hadn't decided on that until we got in the studio. And in those days, we used to count things in, you know, one, two, three, four, and off. Colin Fletcher, the musical director, he often said, you might just as well say, ready, steady, go, because you would never count it in time or anything. <laughs> it was just one, two, it was, how are you going to start it? So I was putting it out, and it just happened. It was purely accidental. I did that, and we started, and... Keith and Larry said, yeah, that, that'll do for a start. And, and they got me to repeat it and repeat it and repeat it. I think they used multi-recording of it or sort of tracked it on top of itself several times. So it really fattened up. Yeah. That's how it got that uh, big noise as an intro thing. I, for a while, I was famous for playing one note. <laughs> it's a hell of a note, though. <laughs> So you were, had all the arrangements down, so it was just a matter of banging them out. Well, the only thing which we didn't have was the instrumental bit for a wild thing, because when we heard the demo, it did sound like an ocarina or some sort of instrument. But apparently, um, when Chip Taylor did the demo, he said the engineer cupped his hands, sort of blew through it, it was sort of making this whistling noise. <laughs> that, was, that was what was the, we got, had on the demo. So Larry said, crikey, he said, well, well we kind of don't know what to put there. He said, I'm thinking about putting a guitar solo in there. He said to Colin Fretchter, he said, pop down the road. She said, see if you can get an ocarina. 
So he, he went down the road there. He found this shop that was open, music shop, and he, he went in and got this ocarina, and she asked him what key he wanted, and he didn't have a clue where what key it was. So he brought the ocarina back, and um, he's very clever because he was a musical director, and he, he tried to get the notes out of this ocarina. He'd never played one before, and he put all sorts of sellotape and sticky stuff over the holes that he didn't want to play. <laughs> yeah. So and he, he had to do that solo on on about th- three notes. <laughs> that, that was what used what used to happen in those days. You know, you make do. You know, if you haven't got something, you, you try something else and make do with what you got and get the best out of it. And you know, of course, everybody knows that ocarina solo, don't they? Yeah. So Colin played it on the record, but from that point on, I guess Reg had to learn how to do it. <laughs> Reg needs to get it in the right key as well. It's all coming <laughs> different keys. The problem was, if you broke one, if you dropped on stage or the roadie broke it, we'd have to get another ocarina, and um, it had to be in the right key as well, otherwise it would sound terrible. But um, we it quite often had two ocarinas, you know, one is a spare, but um, there was always that possibility that once it got broken, then... Um, you know, you had to have another one to follow up a bit quick. <laughs> I imagine, yeah, there must have been roadies running around buying ocarinas all the time. Yeah, but the trouble is, you know, as I said, they come in different keys, you know, and they're, they're not the most popular of instruments in the shop ocarinas, but they might not have the one in your key. And I still don't know what key it's in anyhow. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a clue. I've got a clue. <laughs> Released in the UK on Fontana in April 1966 with the magnificent From Home on the B-side, Wild Thing rocketed to number two in the British charts and a few months later hit the number one spot in America where it was released simultaneously on two different labels, Fontana and Atco. Larry was doing deals, which was another cock-up. He managed to do a deal with Fontana at the same time as mistakenly thinking he'd do another record company think they'd got it. So it was on Fontana and Atco in America. So Atco put it out with, with a girl like you on the B-side. Fontana put it out with From Home on the B-side. So when With a Girl Like You was released as a second record, half of the sales were already gone on the Atco record. Anyway, it did very well in England and it did well in America. And the wild thing got to number one, which was the most surprising. Right. We're talking about Lost Girl. What kind of fuzz box did you use? Because you used that on Lost Girl and From Home and a bunch of the songs. It's a really great sound. I don't know. It, it was just a sort of cast iron cast box with a couple of controls on it and a push button and switch. It didn't have a maker's name on it or anything. I think it was just something somebody gave me and said, try that out. So I plugged into it and, ooh, it made a noise like a violin. If you turn the knob up a bit further, it screamed even more. <laughs> I quite like Uh, when did you realise that the record was going to be a huge hit? Well, it, it, it's unreal, really. Even now I think about it. The thing that you've been dreaming about suddenly comes through. I suppose not in the same context or the same way, but it's like suddenly getting a, a, a win on the lottery. You know, so you've been dying for all this time, and bang, it's suddenly there. Not the same sort of thing, not as in money, but the um, what you've been wanting so much is actually there. You actually can't believe it, really. Yeah, well, and at that point, that's when Reg and Ronnie changed their last names. Yeah, because Larry was a big one for image and the right name and all that. So, so um, he said to Bullis, he said, no, he said, you can't be Ronnie Bullis. So we called him Bond and couldn't have Ball, Reg Ball. It was all right for Michael Ball, but not good for Reg. But uh, <laughs> So 
you said we call you Reg Presley. I don't know if that was a tongue-in-cheek thing, but that's how it went. <laughs> did, you, did you all have a laugh when uh, that was decided? I mean, they must have thought that was pretty funny. Yeah, we were so naive and so grateful. You know, we didn't um, query anything whatsoever. You just went with it. This is what you wanted. You got it. You just go with it. <laughs> yeah, okay, I'm Reg Presley. Fine, yeah. Okay. I'm Reg Presley, Ronnie Bond, you know. God knows. Um, but it's Britain, Chris Britain. He said, that's all right. He said, Staples, yeah. He said, that's all right. No problem with that one. Chris also talked about the infamous Trog tapes from 1971 when a studio engineer covertly left the tape machine running and captured a momentous occasion that will go down as one of the greatest band fights in rock and roll history. We had a little bit of a skirmish with Dick James Music and so on, and they said, well, you still owe us a single, so we had to go up to the demo studio at Dick James, and none of us had heard this bloody song before that Reggie wrote. What was it called? Tranquility. Yeah, Tranquility. Beyond the fuels of gravity, there's a star known as Tranquility. He had a bow diddly beat sort of thing. And he, he knew, Reg knew what he wanted, but he couldn't really explain it very well. One, two, uh, one, two, three, four. You're doing it fucking wrong. And we were trying to work it out in the studio, which we'd never done before. So they just left the tape going, and we thought it was an echo tape running. It wasn't, it was... They were recording the whole lot. Well, you're fucking doing it! <laughs> Do it on your top one, da ba da ba da ba cha No! Of course, Reg and Roy, you know, we usually fight like cat and dog when we're working things out. It's the first time they've seen us do it in the studio, so oh, that was fun. They recorded it. It's a fucking number one. It is. I think it Bollocks. is a good song. I agree, it is a good song. But it fucking well won't be unless we spend a little bit of fucking thought and imagination to fucking make it a fucking number one. What about a fucking 12 string on it? No! You had it there at the beginning, Ron. It was sounding good. Like six months later, somebody came up and said, were you upset when they did that tape? We said, what tape do you mean? We knew nothing about it. Apparently, it had been shipped out to all the studios in London, and they used to play it to nervous young bands coming in for the first time that were a bit sort of cautious and timid in the studio. I said, well, this, this is how the big boys do it. Relax, you know. You've got to put a little bit of fucking fairy dust over the bastard. You know, look at, you know. Well, we'll put some fairy dust well, over it. For- I'll kiss over the tape. I'm very, you know what I mean? It's, it's, you know, I don't know what, I don't know what it needs, then. But ah. And uh, we thought it was bloody hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're notably silent on that. If they were going to have an argument, it would be Reg and Ronnie. Yeah, they were the mo- <laughs> they were sort of the most aggressive and vocal about things. Oh yeah, they they could have an argument about anything. But the great thing was that they could be standing there nose to nose having a bloody shouting argument, and they both get tired after about half an hour. Reggie get his fags out, hand one to Ronnie, they both light up a fag, puff the fag, put the fag out, and then carry on arguing again from where they left off. They're unbelievable. I don't know how they used to manage it. <laughs> so was your role in the band to sort of be kind of a peacemaker? Or how did that work? To, to a certain extent. I mean, if you, if you just let them run at it, they, they'd eventually run out of steam and <laughs> all calm down. Is there a way of sorting things out? Don't just keep saying, oh yeah, but that is right. I know it ain't fucking right. I can fucking hear it right, you cunt. It never came to blows or anything. It was just extremely, <laughs> extremely violently verbal. So, so the, the drugs tape was kind of fairly typical of how 
how oh, they uh, right. work. Yeah, I thought it was quite mild, really, compared to how, how we set off on that <laughs> when we're not in front of other people. <laughs> <laughs> You did it. You did it in the beginning. Bloody hell, I can't play with that. What do you feel about the Trog's place in rock and roll history? Do you feel like, you know, the band's been afforded the respect that it deserves, you know, for all that you've accomplished? All happened so quick that, <laughs> to all intents and purposes, we come from nowhere. What, what do you feel the most proud of about it? Is there any particular record or any particular achievement uh, that, that you feel particularly good about? Yeah, I'm just pleased that we got a crack of the whip to know that we were given a chance. And we were very, very lucky. The Trogs came from nowhere, but trundled out of the rural West Country in their Morris J2 van to end up in an elusive, dreamed about somewhere else. From humble beginnings, they made their mark with a handful of huge hit singles, including the immortal Wild Thing, and went on to give us another 50 years or so of music, on stage and on record. Not only that, with the notorious Trogs tape, they revealed the ultimate secret of how to make a truly great record. You've got to put a little fairy dust over the bastard. I see your face before me as I lay on my bed. For the latest issue of Ugly Things magazine, as well as back issues, select vinyl, and a wealth of additional articles, reviews, and more, please visit our website at uglythings.com. That's ugly-things.com. And you can support us on Patreon, where all contributions are deeply appreciated and will allow us to keep bringing you the very best in 1960s beat, garage and psychedelic music, 70s punk, and other wild sounds from past dimensions. And if you like the show, go ahead and leave a review and a five-star rating. It really does help. Thanks for listening. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.